We're looking in this part of the early end of this year, 2014, at being refreshed, a great topic. And one element that God introduces to us through the gospel is what we're looking at this morning, and that is justification. Here I am with another thing with more than one button. Chris, uh, it says it's on. Here we go again, man. <laughs> oh, you didn't tell me to do that. power of the Holy Ghost never hurt. (laughs) Justification, we're going to see, is the fresh start. We've heard the saying, poor guy, he was all dressed up but had nowhere to go. Well, justification is the opposite of that because we receive robes, robes of righteousness, and we have, when we're granted those, we have everywhere to go. Why justification? is a fresh start. Let's begin with a very pivotal text from Romans. How would, why don't we all read this together? You can remain seated, but on the count of three, let's just re- recite these words right off the screen together. It's great to hear the word declared corporately. Most salt and light congregations, I think it's fair to say, don't overdose on this particular, and the, the Bible talks about it, so it's a good thing to, to begin, okay? On three. One, two, three. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen. You like that? We can all go home now, you know, just hearing the Word of God like that. That happens to be the ESV translation. Uh, I have one quibble on the way they do one word, and many English translations do this. The word rejoice near the end there is not the usual word for rejoice in Greek, and it's not even the word Paul usually uses when he says rejoice in the Lord always in Philippians. He doesn't use the same word. That's kareo. Here it's uh, kalkaomai, and a better translation is boast or brag. That's what we do. We boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God because we know how the story is going to end. You like that? Every story is defined by its end. And when you know how the story ends, you can get through anything. We'll come back to that. I know how this clicker is going to end. I'm going to, okay. Let's look first. What actually is this much debated term, justification? A working definition is that being justified means being declared righteous when we're not. Now, 
we hear that initially and we think, okay, well, what is this? Is it some sort of word game? Is, is God playing some sort of sleight of hand or are preachers playing some sort of theological sleight of hand? Well, no, it is assuredly not that. Earlier in Romans, from what we just read together, we read this. To the one who does not work, in other words, to the one who does not try to merit some sort of right standing with God by his own efforts. To the, to the one who does not work but trusts God. This is the person who says, I don't have the resources. I will never in myself be able to do all that God requires. So what I'll do is trust him. To the one who does not work but trusts God who, no, who is this God How does Paul define this God? He's the God who justifies the ungodly. For those kind of people, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, the key words here, there's several key words. First, we want to think about is the words justifies the ungodly. It sounds like a contradiction in terms If you go back, I don't have the chapter of reference for you, but there's a place in Exodus and a parallel text in Proverbs where God warns the people, and particularly leaders and particularly elders or judges, people that would adjudicate or arbitrate in disputes. He warns them and he says, you must not justify the ungodly for that is an abomination. Now, what it's anticipating is maybe some dispute has arisen among the people. They come to the elders. They come to whoever's the judge in that place, whatever, and they lay it out in front of them. And meanwhile, one of them that's in the dispute who happens to be wealthier than the other guy, he slips a bribe to the judge. And then the judge rules in that guy's favor because he's received the bribe. And he's justifying, he rules in favor of, he justifies the ungodly. He justifies the wicked one. And Exodus, I think it's in 23, and Proverbs, a similar text, God says, don't do that. And the the term God uses about what he thinks of justifying the ungodly, it's a very serious term. He calls it an abomination, not a light term in the Old Testament. So what happens here? What God forbids Israel to do, he does. Go figure. Okay, well, how does he do this? It has to do with another, something else that's revealed in the same verse. He credits something. He credits their faith as righteousness. And by this time in early part of chapter 4, we already know, well, what kind of faith is Paul talking about? Because the end of chapter 3, from verse 21 to the end of chapter 3, it's exclusively, totally, and wholly faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not just a vague religious sentiment. It's faith in Christ and who he was, is, and all that he did on our behalf. If we say, I'm banking on him, I'm banking on what he did, God says, you're on. Because it glorifies God and it glorifies His Son when people just come and abandon themselves at the foot of the cross. I'm trusting in this. I'm trusting in in Him. When we do that, the faith, because it's faith in Christ, is credited to us as righteousness. 
The word that's used therefore credited is translated different ways in different Bibles. Um, some translate it counted. Some translate it hello, reckoned. There's different ways you can translate it. Interestingly, it's used earlier in Romans back in chapter 2 where we're told that God will credit the uncircumcised or count, probably works better here, he will count the uncircumcised as being circumcised even when they're not. So what God says about the person overrides what they are in themselves, okay? Even at a very personal level. (laughs) What God says overrides everything else. Now how does this apply? There's a few word pictures that the scriptures give us. Always start with the Old Testament. Back in Exodus 28, I'd encourage you to have a look at that today. It's a great, uh, uh, a great text. We read there about Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, and his sons. And of course, they were the priests in ancient Israel. And part of that role or that ministry required them, of course, to enter not just the tabernacle, the outer court, not just the, uh, the holy place, but even the most holy place. How could they ever do that? There's some dramatic moments in the Old Testament where people try to, without proper authorization or permission, they try to approach God and they die. Like Uzzah in, in 2 Samuel 6, he touches the sacred Ark of the Covenant and he's, he dies on the spot. So how can Aaron... And his sons ever hope to approach God? Well, part of the answer in Exodus 28 is that they are assigned garments. It takes the entire chapter. It's a lengthy chapter, 40 or 50 verses long, describing the garments. They are described, uh, they are prescribed garments, not just described, but prescribed in the sense We're told exactly what they're meant to look like, exactly what kinds of fabric, the colors, every single little detail. They are the prescribed garments and they are, I love this, quote, for glory and for beauty. And Moses tells Aaron and his sons, you must wear these. Now, here is where you wonder if there was kind of a gulp when Moses spoke about the garments, you must wear these when you enter the the most holy place, (laughs) lest you die. (laughs) But what that meant was that if they wore the garments, the holy place of God, the most holy place, the manifest glory of God became safe for them. They could enter because their status before God, their standing before God was suddenly altered. They were dressed up in something that didn't belong to them, but was assigned to them. What they were in the covenant overrode what they were in themselves. I don't know if you're a notes taker, but that might might not hurt to write that one down. What they were in the covenant. See, all this was God's idea. They didn't, Aaron and his sons didn't contrive this and cook it up. God revealed it. It was part of the covenant. What they were in the covenant. Whose covenant? God's covenant. The one God made up. 
what they were in the covenant overrode what they were in themselves. And justification is, means this, that what we are in Christ overrides what we are in ourselves. You know the illustration. It's an old Bob Mumfordism, about 100 years old. Pretend my hand is all soiled and dirty. But then I take this nice clean cloth and I put it over it so the, the soiled, dirty hand is covered with a pure white cloth. My hand would rec- represent in this little object lesson my own character, who I am in myself. But the cloth would cover it like Christ's righteousness clothes all of us. What we are in Christ overrides what we are in ourselves. Do you start to see this? You've all heard me in my tales of woes over the years with UKBA. Well, we solved it a few years ago because Velma, and I don't know why we didn't do this in the very, very beginning, but Velma, uh, born in Canada, has UK ancestry. Both of her grandparents on one side were born in Cornwall. And we found out that we could apply and take advantage of that ancestry. And she could simply because she has UK ancestry within the last two generations that automatically qualified her to come through immigration when she would land at the airport. What about her husband? Well, he has no UK ancestry, and if he does, it goes back about 400 years. It's got to be within two generations. Praise the Lord, they granted me ancestry on my wife's coattails. They granted me a visa on her coattails. I just said they granted me ancestry. They didn't do that because I don't have it. But they granted me permission to enter on Velma's coattails. Do you see where I'm going? What we are in Christ overrides what we are in ourselves. I remember when the passports came back from UKBA and our hearts are pounding. Did they say yes? Did they give us the visas? We open up Velma's and it says, right to enter by virtue of ancestry. We went and opened mine. Right to enter must be accompanied by his wife. This did wonders for my, for my male self-image. <laughs> I have to have my minder with me to uh, bring, bring me through. What we are in Christ overrides what we are in ourselves. You with me? This is powerful. We need to get hold of this. Now, let's keep going. How did God do it? How God did this? He did it by enacting on the stage of history what we could call the great exchange. Best represented in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin, I mean, Paul's operating here theologically at a very exalted level. Our minds can't pretend to climb this mountain. 
all that's, all that's going on. He made Christ to be sin, and Christ was the sinless one. But he did that for an intended outcome, namely that we could become the righteousness of God. Some of us sometimes enjoy the message a translation of the Bible. That's Eugene Peterson. Here is how he translates that verse. How, you ask, in Christ, how are we, do we, are we saved? How, you ask, in Christ, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so that we could be put right with God. It's the great exchange. He was crushed, and we are healed. That's from the great suffering servant oracle in Isaiah 53. Christ was forsaken. Remember, he cries out on the cross, Why have you forsaken me? Of course, quoting from Psalm 22, He was forsaken, but we are now, because of him, reconciled. He receives this in those dreadful hours on the cross, but we receive this from God the Father as the outcome. Isaiah again says, they made his grave with the wicked. He ended up in a graveyard among fallen sinners who had died. We enter the new Jerusalem. We could go on all day tracking the great exchange. This happened to Jesus This happens to us. He had to wear the crown of thorns so that our minds could be renewed. We could go on all day. It's an amazing part of God's great works in history on our behalf. Here's one of the more gripping ones, I think. He was stripped. Extra-biblical sources indicate from that time that customarily the Romans, who were the main perpetrators of crucifixion as a means of execution, they would strip the victims naked. And they particularly delighted in doing this to the Jews, who perhaps more than most people groups of that day had a a great regard and respect for the human body, and hence a keen sense of modesty. So if you crucified Jews and strip them naked, public nakedness, it simply added to the shame and to the disgrace This is partly supported, not proven, but partly supported in John 19, 23, where, as in the other Gospels, we have the scene where the soldiers cast lots, almost like throwing dice, to uh, see who would win Jesus' garments. In John's account of that moment, he names the garment. It's the one that was a seamless robe, okay? And the term that he uses normally in those days meant an undergarment. So it's a discreet way suggesting at least that he died naked for all intents and purposes. It added to the disgrace. By the way, being stripped, I'm not trying to be inappropriate, I hope I'm not. You go back to Ezekiel and Isaiah and Hosea, all three, and one of the kinds of judgment that God said he was going to mete out on his own idolatrous people, he said, I'll strip you naked before all the nations. And what he was talking about was send them to Babylon in the exile. He says, I'm going to show everybody what you're really like. You're like an unfaithful wife. I'm going to strip you bare. 
in front of everybody. It was a sign of judgment. And that kind of judgment, in the end, was meted out, in a sense, on Christ himself. He got stripped. We get clothed. Boy, I like that one. He got stripped. We get clothed. Remember, I think it's one of the Wesley hymns, Clothed in Righteousness Divine. Remember that. Here's our little tagline again. What we are in Christ overrides what we are in ourselves. Might not hurt to try and memorize that. Be able to roll it through your mind when you can't sleep at night or you're stuck in traffic. Just let's, We could say to ourselves, what we are in Christ overrides what we are in ourselves. When the devil comes and wants to remind you of your rap sheet. You know, rap sheet does not mean rap like the music. At least in, in, rap sheets, at least in America, mean your criminal record. And when the accuser wants to come and remind you of your rap sheet, which maybe is pages long, you just say, well, it doesn't matter, devil, because what I am in Christ overrides what I am in myself. Do some warfare using that great truth. Now, what about this fresh start? All of that was prep on seeing how justification offers us this fresh start. The first thing we need to see, and there, um, there's, there's three of them, just the three, they all come from those verses we recited together back in Romans 5. The first thing God does is, in terms of giving us the fresh start is he gives us peace with himself, peace with God. Now, it's not as straightforward as we may expect. In a fallen world, peace with God is not automatic. It's not a given. It's not an entitlement. There are you, those are your parents there in that sketch. I've, this may or may not come as good news. Did you know that all of you are related to me? That may or may not be good news, but a few years ago, Velma was traveling and she, with her sister and sister's husband, and they ended up staying at Simon Shaw's parent house, parents' house. Uh, where was it? In, I think in Devon. And uh, Velma found uh, a book on Sheila Shaw's, it's Simon's mother. Most of you know Simon, he used to live here. Uh, on her bookshelf, and she opened it up and it said, with much love and best wishes to Sheila Birch, Simon Shaw's mother's maiden name. Now, Birch is Velma's family name on her mother's side, and it was spelled in the same way, in an unusual way, with a U instead of an I, and we thought, oh my goodness. So Velma comes home, she says, guess what, you might be related to Simon Shaw. (laughs) I thought, I don't know if this is good news or not. And one of Velma's aunties over in Canada got so hot on this, she wanted, she, she sent us an email and she said, could you send us a lock of Simon Shaw's hair that we could send for a DNA analysis to see if, I, I, we told her, I don't want to know. It's a, I'm a good friend of Simon, but that's a bit much. And in the end, we found out it would have cost 700 bucks to have them test it over in Canada. So we let it, where was I going with that? You're related to me. I may, well, I am related to Simon Shaw, if you go back far enough, because our original parents flagrantly, blatantly, brazenly disobeyed God. And we inherit the situation they created. 
peace with God for a rebellious race is not an entitlement. We're not entitled to it. The default setting for sinners is judgment. The natural expectation for all of us is judgment. Let's look at two little stories about men who expected judgment. One of them I just love. I love both of them. One of them's back in Genesis 32 and 33. It's Jacob. He has pulled those clever and very dishonest and devious stunts on his brother Esau. Esau finds out Jacob has to flee for his life. He leaves, he moves north many miles, virtually begins a new life, marries, raises children, becomes very wealthy. But then decades later, he thinks it's time to go home. He's on his way home now with his many servants, huge flocks, because he's wealthy now. And then he starts to think, wait a minute, Going home, I'm going to have to face Esau. He's the one I stole the birthright from. And I left because he vowed he would murder me. What's it going to be like when I meet Jacob or Esau on the road? So he gets smart, he thinks. And what he does, it's in Genesis 32. He calls his servants and he says, look, take a hundred of those sheep and you go on ahead of us. Just go on ahead. We'll just hold back here a little bit. You go on ahead and when you, you go find Esau and say, these, these sheep are a gift from your brother. And a few little while later, he calls his another servant and he gets another even bigger flock of different kinds of animals and he's sending all these huge, these very generous gifts. It even uses the word atone. If you read it in Hebrew, it's, he's, he's thinking, perhaps I can atone for what I did. Trying to atone for his own deviousness and dishonesty. He sends all these things ahead. Well, finally the day comes. He can't keep just doing this forever and holding back and delaying. And he gets close enough. He's on the road. And then he sees Esau. And he thinks, well, now what? And it's one of the great surprises of the Old Testament. We're told in Genesis 33, verse 4, Esau saw Jacob and he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. Okay, who knows where I'm going? Ran, embraced, kissed. Does that sound familiar? The most famous of Christ's parables. Ladies and gentlemen, all of us are Jacob's. The prodigal son was a Jacob. And praise the Lord, the one that we're coming home to meet is not Esau, but someone far better. He expected judgment. That's why he was sending all these gifts ahead to soften the blow. The prodigal son is on his way home. Now, he doesn't have anything left. He's broke. So what's he do? How is he going to cushion the blow of rejection? How's he going to try and prepare the way? Well, what he does is rehearse in his mind again and again and again a little speech that he will make when he meets his father. And he says, Father, I'm no longer, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to even be called your son. Would you allow me to live as part of the household as your slave? And he, go, he has this thing already. Maybe he's got it memorized. 
So he's drawing near the house. Jesus says in Luke 15 that the father, looking out one day, he saw him when he's a long way off. Picture of salvation. You know, the Lord saw you you while you were still a long way off. He saw him while he was still a long way off. And guess, guess which three verbs Jesus uses to describe the moment. He's quoting Genesis 33, 4. The father ran. Not done in those places. And a man that age wouldn't run in public. It's considered undignified. Well, that's tough luck. This father thinks, I'm going to run because there's my son. He ran and he embraced the, the young man and he kissed him and he welcomed him back. They expected rejection. They received grace. Ran, hugged, kiss. It's a picture of peace with God. That young man there was given a fresh start. Ja- uh, Jacob was given a fresh start start, however long the rap sheet may have been. Okay, peace with God. What we're doing is tracking what constitutes this fresh start that justification gives us. First thing is peace with God. Second thing is continuous access to God. We're not just allowed to come and enter like, like a tourist would in the, in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God. It's not just that. We are allowed to enter. That's the initial moment of justification when God receives us through Christ. That's the prodigal son getting the big bear hug from the father. It's that. But it doesn't end there. Here's... Go back to the verse we recited together earlier. Through him we have also. See, he starts out saying we've been justified, but now he uses the word also, suggesting there's something in addition to the initial justifying. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now enter. Well, yeah, but it says stand. This grace in which we now enter. Stand. It's not simply a matter of entering, it's a matter of standing. It's being in the presence of God. It's more than permission to visit, it's a permanent relationship. I, I always like images from the Old Testament, and there's one of my favorites. A Levite, a priest, from the artist's impression there, it looks to be like the temple. This is not the tabernacle, it looks more like a permanent structure. So he's imagining what it was like centuries later when Solomon has them build this splendid temple to replace the the original tabernacle. And then there's a psalm about this. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night, in the middle of the night, they could stand in the presence of the Lord. Because our knowledge of him, our relationship with him, our privilege of entering his presence is 24-7. We can always know him who stand by night in the house of the Lord. That man, let's use him as a picture of us for a moment and we'll move on. Because he has peace with God and 
is allowed to remain in God's presence, he can ask God for things. I wonder what he's asking God for. He could be saying, Lord, my kids are driving me nuts. I don't know how to be a proper dad. So I'm coming to you. Lord, there's friction between me and my wife. And I don't have the emotional resources. My own father was a bit mixed up and he never modeled it for me how to be a good husband. So Lord, I'm coming to you. He's asking God for needs in his own life. And you know what? He has the right to do that. He has the right to do that. Why? Because he has peace with God. And he's standing by night or any time of day or night in the presence of the Lord. It's the fresh start. He stands justified. He's even got the proper robes which allows him in there. I think this is relevant for some of us this morning. You need to know that with peace with God, you can ask God for things. You're entitled to do that. Finally, third aspect of the fresh start. There's peace with God. There's continuous access to God. And then there's this. Confidence in the victory of God. Stories are defined by their endings. Some while I was traveling to America and, you know, you have the little, tiny little movie screen in the back of the seat in front of you. And I looked around and I couldn't find any movies I was really familiar with and I got stuck watching one. I won't go into detail about it, but I remember when it was over, I, just, I switched it off and I had the worst taste in my mouth. It was nothing immoral or pornographic, nothing like that, but the bad guys won. I couldn't believe when I got to the end. This innocent man dies and there's no accountability at all. He dies, you just watch him die and then the credits start to go up. And I thought, I felt like calling the stewardess. Do you have another movie? <laughs> you know, that's not, the, we were not created to live in that kind of a story. Am I right? We do live in that story, it seems, sometimes in a fallen world. But the God story ends with glory. God is the winner in the end. The end of the story is glory. I know that's very clever, it rhymes, sounds like a rap. But the end of the story is glory. We need to know that. When we know that, we can get through anything. When you read a book... When you see a film and you know a bit about the script writer or the original novelist, if they took it from a novel, if you know a little bit about the writer and there's moments in the story, everything's dark, it looks like evil's going to triumph and it's very tense. I mean, that makes for a good show. It really does. But sometimes if you know a little bit about the author, you think, uh-uh, uh-uh. I know this guy, for him, good triumphs in the end, so I'm just going to hold on. And we need to do that in our, our own lives. We need to, we're, the author, capital A, that's writing this story, does not believe in bad endings. The chapters may end on a down note sometimes, sure. God might require us to walk through things, but the final page will be the glory of the Lord. So Paul says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He is talking about the end of the story. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. And remember, the word he uses there 
You can translate it rejoice, but a better translation is boast. We boast in hope of the glory of God. I had a friend that used to say hope for a Christian is spelled with a capital H. I like that. Psalm 64, David says, extol him who rides on the clouds. Do you think there might be a slight echo in this text? And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The first one from Psalm 68, David's talking about God coming in judgment, God coming in victory, God coming in faithful covenant, keeping loyalty to Israel. David knew the story would end with the victory of God. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Extol the cloud rider. Great name for the covenant God, the cloud rider. Well, no accident that when Christ describes the end of history, he says the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory. Tremper Longman wrote a book, and I was really mad when I saw the title of this. He's an Old Testament scholar in the States. It's called Cloud Rider Rides Again, about the second coming. I love that. That's what it is. Cloud Rider's going to ride again. We know who will win. Please, let's go home with that today. I'm coming to the finish line here. We know who's going to win. And in the meantime, we boast. I hope we go out of here today boasting. Final illustration. David boasted when he faced Goliath. Goliath mocks him. He's very dismissive and derisive. David says in 1 Samuel 46, he's got the sling. He's got the sling. Goliath has his mocking words. He puts in his two cents. And then David, as the sling, as the stone is gathering speed and gathering momentum, he says, Yahweh. I wonder if Goliath ever even knew that name. He uses the covenant name, Yahweh, the burning bush name. Yahweh is going to deliver you into my hand and I am going to take your sword and chop off your head. (laughs) Sir. (laughs) And that's what David did. When he said Yahweh is going to deliver you into my hand, he had hope with a capital H. He knew the end of the story was glory. He knew God would win. All dressed up and everywhere to go. Justification means being counted righteous. What we are in Christ overrides what we are in ourselves. And you have a contest to see who can say that to themselves the most today. You can phone Steve Jones tonight and tell him how many times you said it. (laughs) What we are in Christ overrides what we are in ourselves. And then, of course, the fresh start. Peace with God. I pray you know that bear hug embrace the prodigal son received. We need to know that. Continuous access to God. We can always, always, always come and bring your needs with you and your requests. And finally, of course, confidence in the victory of God. We know who is going to win. 
Lord, we thank you for justification. You provided a way for sinners to be accepted in your presence and in a right relationship with you. It's the ultimate fresh start. We pray this week we can live in the good of these great truths. Be with us now as we remember the sacrifice that made it possible as we take the Lord's Supper together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.